0: My name is Christopher. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at River West and just have the joy and the privilege of diving back into our series in Luke. You're going to want to have a Bible open this morning. So if you raise your hand, the ushers are going to come around and you can open up the printed page to Luke chapter one. Today, we're going to be diving into a passage that is typically reserved for the Christmas season. The story of the angel Gabriel's visitation to a young teenage Galilean girl named Mary. It's the Christmas story, and it's October. That's how we roll here at River West. We are preaching expositorily through the entire book of Luke, verse by verse, so we're letting the text lead the way. And I couldn't be more excited about what the Lord is going to do and how He's going to shape us as a community through the Gospel of Luke. But let's have an honest moment. Could we for a minute? It's a little odd to be considering the Christmas story in in its October, and there's still leaves on the trees out there. If you're anything like me, Yuletide Glee has its season, but it also has a shelf life. I'm personally not interested in hearing Christmas carols of any sort in the supermarket before Thanksgiving. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah, right on. You guys are with me. I think there were some people that took offense to that. They're like, no way. Let Hark the Herald Angels sing, like just blast over the speakers while I'm grabbing my turkey. My wife thinks it's an unforgivable sin. So, but let's be honest. It would be a little bit weird, wouldn't, wouldn't it, if you would have come in here this morning and Colin and the team right out of the gate, let us in silent night, and Mary, did you know? It would be a little odd, right? But why? Think about this for a moment. We sing Easter songs about the reality of Jesus' resurrection all year long, and nobody thinks that that is weird or strange. It's wonderful. So why do we only tend to sing songs about the Incarnation once a year during Christmas season? You see, I secretly suspect that you and I have grown accustomed to only giving the Incarnation of Christ serious thought and consideration once a year during Christmas. And even then, I think the staggering wonder of the miracle of the incarnation often gets lost among sentimental gush and the consumerism of our American Christmas. However, in the same way that you'll never experience the power of the resurrection, if you only give it serious consideration at Easter, you will never experience the wonder and joy of the gospel until you actually take the incarnation seriously. So Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) It's October, and we're reading the story of Christ's birth. We're going to be jumping in at verse 26 in Luke 1. Open up the word as we take in, perhaps in a new way, a story we have all heard And know very well the story of Christ's birth, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. If you've been following along so far in the Luke series, you know by now that Luke's goal in recording this Jesus story, is not just to help unbelievers believe the gospel, but actually to help believers believe the gospel and become more convinced of the core truths of the Christian faith. So back in verse 4, earlier on, we saw that Luke comes right out of the gate and tells us what the purpose of his letter is. Let's just get a refresher. In verse 4, Luke writes, and he says, I am writing this account that you, most excellent Theophilus, as well as most excellent you and I, fill in your name there, may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the whole reason for this gospel account is to help move not only unbelievers, but believers as well, beyond our confusion and our doubts into a more confident, robust faith in Jesus. So to help us do that at the very outset of this gospel account, Luke puts two stories side by side. The story of a doubting priest priest named Zechariah that we saw last week. And then right after that, he contrasts that with the story of this teenage Galilean girl named Mariam. We know her as Mary. And as Adam alluded to last week, the reason that Luke does this at the very outset of his gospel is to contrast two very different responses to Jesus and the annunciation of the gospel. And Luke's point is clear as day. It's his way of telling us don't be a gospel doubter like Zechariah, be a gospel believer like Mary. So, today, what I'd like you to consider is we see Mary's response in this story, what we're actually witnessing is the first Christian conversion. You see, long before Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel in her home in the backwoods of Galilee, the Old Testament had foretold of a day when Israel's Messiah and rescuer and king would come and somehow by his power and the Holy Spirit put everything right that has been wrecked since the fall in our broken world. But here in this story is the first person to ever hear the name of Jesus and make a connection that it was God himself who had come in the flesh to save us from sin and to set our broken world right. So Mary, in a very real sense, is the first Christian In history. And as we'll see, she's a remarkable one at that. So Luke puts her encounter and her story at the very center and up front in his gospel to show us what it looks like to be wholly surrendered gospel believers. So, to help us do that today, today what we're gonna do is we're gonna glean from Mary's story two things. We're going to look at what Mary believed and how Mary responded. What did she believe about Jesus and how did she respond to This news, because I think, in a in a very, very, very brilliant way, Luke puts this story of Mary, her belief and her response at the beginning of his gospel, because he's trying to teach us how to read the story that he's recorded for us. He's trying to teach us, saying, Here's how to read this story of Jesus' life, who he claimed to be, and here's a response that will convert your life and change everything about who you are. So let's look first in this story and get a a clearer sense of what Mary believed. What did Mary believe? Well, first and foremost, right out of the gate, she believed and was told that she was a recipient of God's grace. Mary believed that she was the object of God's grace. And twice in this story, perhaps you noticed it, the angel Gabriel tells her that God's grace is upon her life. From the very first greeting in verse 28, the angel Gabriel shows up without warning and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary, understandably, freaks out. And then in verse 30, the angel Gabriel, he comforts her and announces again and tells her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, the Greek word for favor in this text and other places in the New Testament, this Greek word charis is actually just translated grace. It's where we get the word grace from. So some translations actually read Rejoice, O graced one, the Lord is with you. You have found grace with God. And I love that. What a beautiful thing for this angel to say to Mary. Mary, you have found grace with God. Rejoice, O graced one. And the reason that she's found favored with favor with God is not because she's done anything to deserve it, but simply because God has chosen to lavish lavish his favor and his kindness on Mary. You see, unlike Zechariah and Elizabeth, whom Luke describes back in verse 6 as righteous before God, walking blamelessly, in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So they're righteous people that are walking with God. Luke actually doesn't include anything about Mary's righteousness, her walk with the Lord, her obedience or piety. It doesn't appear that there was anything remarkable or righteous about her at all. She's just a poor, most likely uneducated, Galilean teenage girl. And as we'll see, Mary is truly an amazing woman of faith. But don't miss this, friends. The grace of God rested on Mary, not because she had done anything remarkable or righteous, but because God had chosen to do something so remarkable for her and in her and through her, that God's grace would actually spread and explode, not only to reach in Israel, but to go out into every corner of the world from this remarkable moment right here. You know, friends, let me tell you something. If you want God to use your life in remarkable ways, don't set out to be a remarkable and amazing person that goes into our world and does noteworthy things. Instead, pray and ask God to make you into a humble servant like Mary. You see, the scriptures tell us twice in the New Testament, once in the book of James, once in the, the book of uh, First Peter, That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in the end, that is why the Lord chose Mary for the most remarkable mission in history. Not because she was a remarkable woman or righteous, but because she saw herself as a humble servant and recipient of God's grace. And because of that, God used her to actually spread his grace in the most remarkable way. Now, granted, Mary is utterly clueless how this plan is going to happen. So next, Gabriel tells Mary how God's gracious plan is going to unfold. So look again at verses 31 and 32. After being told that God's grace is for her, now the angel is going to describe how God's grace is going to actually use her and work through her in verses 31 and 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of of the Most High. Here's the second thing that Mary believed. She believed that she would bear a son who would be the Son of God. She believed by faith that she would give birth to God in the flesh, the very Son of God. Did you notice in the passage that we just read how the word son actually showed up twice in the passage, once in lowercase and once in uppercase? In verse 31, first Gabriel tells Mary, you'll conceive in your womb and you'll bear a son, a lowercase son. Then right after that, in verse 32, he adds that this won't be any ordinary son, Or descendant. In fact, he will be great and will be called the uppercase son of the Most High. Now, what you need to know about Luke's gospel is Luke is going to spend a considerable amount of time in his gospel ascribing these Son of God titles to Jesus. So pay attention to those as you read Luke's gospel and Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, people responding in faith and saying you're the Son of God, even demons actually recognizing you are the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. You're the son of God in Luke's gospel. Pay attention to those moments. However, here, when this title is used for Jesus, ascribed to him by the angel Gabriel, it's clear that what Luke wants us to see was that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. The lowercase son of Mary and the uppercase son of God. Unlike you and I, Jesus was not conceived out of the union of a man and a woman, but through the supernatural conception of the Holy Spirit. So we read in verse 35 that the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. And then the angel says, Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, Mary contributed humanity to Jesus, a human womb. But the Holy Spirit contributed divinity to Jesus. And that's why Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. In fact, what you can do later on is you can look. Luke includes a genealogy in chapter 3. And he starts with Jesus being the son of Joseph. But then as the genealogy continues, goes all the way back to the garden and says that Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. So throughout this gospel, Luke is holding those two things together, Jesus' divinity and oneness with the father and his humanity As well. Last night, uh, we had an event that we hosted here at River West called Saved by Grace, a conversation between Christian scholars and Mormon scholars to actually uh, help people understand the distinctions between Christian faith and Mormon faith. And in the end, it comes down to what you believe about Jesus what you believe about Jesus. You see, Mormons believe that when Jesus became a man, he left his godness in heaven, came down as fully man, and then when he ascended, he ascended back into his godness. But Christianity actually doesn't claim that whatsoever. It adamantly claims that Jesus, when he came down, He was God with us. That's why from the outset, the angel tells Mary, rejoice, O favored one. God is with you. That God with us has a name. His name is Jesus. And only a savior who is fully uppercase son of God can save. Amen? That's what we believe. That's what we believe as as followers of of Jesus, that only an uppercase son of God can can save. If he was just the lowercase son of Mary, there would be no hope and no salvation in his name. And so Gabriel helps Mary understand that the child that she'll give birth to will be God. Secondly, or I'm sorry, thirdly, the last thing that Gabriel, uh, Gabriel, I'm changing his name. Don't strike me mute, Lord. (laughs) The last thing Gabriel tells Mary is that her son will not only be fully God, but that he will be a king. He'll be a king. Perhaps you noticed that there's a lot of regal, kingly language in this passage. So in verse 33, in the second half of it, it says that he will reign, this son will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Three things about the kind of king that Gabriel tells Mary her son will be. First and foremost, Gabriel tells her that he will be an utterly sovereign king. That he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That there's no limit to the sovereignty and the power that this king that she'll give birth to will have. You see, for over 2,000 years since the days of Abraham and Isaac And Jacob, in the Bible, God had been preparing for this moment with Mary. Promise after promise in the Old Testament had pointed to the day when a son of David would come, a king like David, but infinitely greater and more glorious as an heir to the throne who would rule and reign and redeem God's people back to himself. And so Gabriel tells Mary that sovereign king, that king like David, but greater has come. You see, what's interesting about what Gabriel tells Mary that's different from the way that he described the birth of John the Baptist, back earlier in the chapter, when Gabriel showed up and announced the birth of John the Baptist, he told Zechariah, Your son will be great before the Lord. Right here in this part of the story, it doesn't say that Jesus will be great before the Lord. It just says that he'll be great because he is the Lord. He's greatness and sovereignty in flesh. And so All these promises of Israel's Messiah and king, Gabriel says he's going to be a sovereign king. He's going to rule and reign. Secondly, Gabriel tells Mary, your son is going to be a sinless king. He's not only going to be sovereign, he's going to be sinless. So in verse 35, he tells Mary, therefore the child to be born to you will be called holy. That word holy means pure and good, without any defect or deficiency or imperfection. You know, and from our vantage point in this world, the whole sordid history of our world hinges on what unholy kings have done. We know unholy kings. Unholy kings bring nothing but war, corruption, and injustice to bear on our world. But a perfectly holy king could come and undo all that, could come and heal and bring peace and perfect justice. And this is the kind of king that Mary is going to conceive. This is the kind of sinless king that Jesus is and was and forever will be sovereign God in the flesh, but sinless king who can die and atone for our sins as well. And lastly, Gabriel tells Mary that the child that she'll conceive will be a saving king. And he does this by announcing the very name of Jesus. You see, Jesus, his name literally means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. And friends, there's so much hope in that name because it means that the king that Mary conceived is not just powerful or pure He's also merciful towards sinners. It means that He is a God of grace, a King who can save us from our sins, a King of sinners like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and you and I. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Later on in this chapter, Mary will be moved by this vision of this king to song and so she'll pour out her heart to song and say, my soul magnifies the Lord or the king and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. So by revelation of the Holy Spirit and God's grace upon Mary, she realized that the child in her womb was nothing less than her Lord and her Savior. Amazing. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at how, how did Mary respond to this revelation? And she responded in two ways that I'm going to pray For us, as we spend time camping out on Luke's gospel, may these be, these two things, our responses to this gospel account. The first way that Mary responds to this news that the King has come, the sovereign King, Lord of all in Jesus Christ, to bring grace to all, she responds with humble discernment. Look back again at verse 29 and look at how Mary responds with what I'm calling humble discernment in this story. It says that she was greatly troubled at the saying, as we'd all be, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, the Greek word that Luke chose there is actually a word that that means to take an audit. It's a financial word, an accounting word. And it means to add things up, to be furiously rational, to weigh the information, to weigh the truth. This means is that when the angel showed up, the first response was actually asking questions. Am I really seeing an angel? Is this not a hallucination? Mary is responding in faith, but it's not just a heart thing in this story, it's a head thing. She's thinking and she's asking questions. She's saying, How can this be? However, unlike Zechariah, she's not responding to Gabriel's news with doubts or demands for signs. Instead, she's responding with humble discernment, and there's a difference. In fact, notice how Zechariah's response differs from Mary's in this story. He asks a different question. In verse 18, which we saw last week, after being told about the supernatural birth that him and his barren wife will experience, he actually asked the angel, how can I know this? How can I know this? And then he he wants the angel to demonstrate that he can know this by giving him a sign. But Mary did not say, how can I know this? Instead, in verse 34, look at what she asks. She says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? She, She doesn't doubt at all. She believes it's going to be. She believes. But she has no clue how a virgin is going to conceive because she hasn't gotten to that part of the engagement, like celebration with with Joseph yet. So it's a plain as day question, which is why she doesn't get struck mute. And, you know, for years, I just thought I read this story and I thought, man, what's going on here? You know, Zechariah asks a question and he gets muted And Mary asks a question, and she gets an explanation and a blessing. What's going on? It's because one person is responding with doubt and demands for signs, and the other person is responding with discernment. So Gabriel has no problem at all explaining this is how it's going to be, because she believes it's going to be. He says the Holy Spirit is going to do this miracle. The power of the Most High God is going to overshadow you, and that's how you're going to get pregnant. And then he tells her, go visit Elizabeth. We'll see this next week. And she's pregnant too. And she's advanced in years. And then the angel, I love this. It's one of my favorite phrases in the New Testament. I love this. I try to live by this. Verse 37, he says, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God to which Mary responds with unequivocal surrender. She not only shows us what humble discernment looks like, she shows us what unequivocal surrender looks like. And so in verse 38, she says, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Friends, in this moment, Mary surrendered her everything to the Lord. Not only her heart, her mind, her soul, but also her body, her reputation in the community, her relationship with her friends and family, knowing deep down I'll be scorned and shamed for this. I'll experience nothing but shame, and she does. She lays down on the altar of belief in this moment, her engagement to Joseph, all of her hopes of an honorable marriage ceremony in her community. She lays it all down in utter surrender and says, Lord, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word even though she doesn't understand everything fully about who her son is going to be, she surrenders everything to her Lord and Savior in this moment and never looks back. You know, in between services today, I had a beautiful conversation with a junior high guy where I'm his Bible study leader Wednesday nights. And he's been asking questions and just went through um, the understanding baptism class that we offer here at River West Church, and he came up to me and it was so wonderful. This young man he came up to me and, and his name's Vincent, and he said, He said, Pastor Christopher, I'm really nervous and I'm scared because I don't understand everything, and I, I'm really wrestling with, with whether I should get baptized. And I asked him, I just said, Vincent do you believe that you need a savior? And tears welled up in his eyes and he said, yes, I do. I believe that. So I asked him, I said, do you you believe you need a savior like Jesus? And he said, more than anything. I said, buddy, then you're getting dunked. You're getting baptized. If you're here and you have questions, you need to know. We love questions at River West. Part of the reason that we preach through the scriptures in their context is we want people to be humble, discerning students of God's word. Listen, if you don't have it all figured out, the water's warm. There's many of us here that don't have it all figured out. Don't let the fact that you don't fully understand the gospel from fully surrendering your heart to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'd love to talk to you about getting baptized. I believe the Holy Spirit is knocking on some hearts here this morning and you're holding back. You're afraid. You're afraid to fully surrender. Don't be afraid, friends. It's the way to freedom, an abundant life, and hope that will convert you, transform you into an entirely new person. It'll revolutionize your life. And all that you need to do is say, Jesus, I don't fully understand everything, but I believe you love me that you died for my sins and I need a king because I can't save myself. I can't fix this. I need a savior. If that's you, talk to me, talk to Adam. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to see you next Sunday get baptized, surrender your heart, your life to Jesus as your king, your savior, your Lord. You need to know when God looks upon you today, he says, oh favored one, oh favored one, the Lord is with you, the Lord is with you. God wants to just lavish you with kindness and grace. Don't turn your heart off from that. He'll never let you down. And have the worship team come up. This morning, we're gonna respond, Colin and the band, um, they, they picked this song of response today called Remembrance that actually tells us what we remember when we go to the table and we take the bread and the cup. We're remembering Jesus. The same Jesus that was announced to Mary in this moment grew up, grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and with man. He was rejected by his own people. And even though he was rejected in love and in mercy and grace, He suffered and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day as our victorious king so that he could set us free to enjoy unbroken fellowship and communion with God. That's what we celebrate when we take the bread and remember Jesus' body broken for us and the cup and we praise the Lord. So what I'd like to to do this morning, we're gonna have a time of reflection during communion, go take those elements. If you're here with friends or those you're sitting next to and you feel moved to pray for one another, do that during this time. We'll also have a team over here, myself and some friends of mine, will be available if you'd like to pray. If you came in with something heavy, don't leave here today carrying that by yourself. Lay it down, surrender that thing. We'll be over here, we'll be available to pray. Let's do that right now, friends. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for the work that your Holy Spirit, Lord, is doing in this moment right here. Father, I thank you for, in grace, Lord, bringing favor, bringing acceptance and forgiveness, Lord, to us. Thank you so much, Lord, for sending your son Jesus to suffer and die, to set us free. Father, I pray that you'd make it clear today what you're calling us to surrender. That we, like Mary, can say, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Father, in this moment, I pray that your Holy Spirit would set us free to surrender that thing that we came in here with. So that we can walk freely, Lord, with you. Pray that in the matchless name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen.